I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to season three of More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story. Tell me a story, tell me true. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Welcome to More to the Story Season 3, Episode 3, the show all about something near and dear to my heart, telling true stories without shame and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gumtree dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the artists and writers we publish. Digital subscriptions are $20 a year and print subscriptions are $80 a year. All that info is online at underthegumtree.com, and you can also find out about my work as a book editor and coach for nonfiction authors at janamarlise.com. On today's episode of More to the Story, I'm joined by Katie Standeffer. Katie's debut book, Lightning Flowers, was published in November 2020 from Little Brown. It was shortlisted for the 2018 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Prize from Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard. Her work was featured in the Best American Essays 2016. It won the 2015 Iowa Review Award in Nonfiction and most recently appeared in Virginia Quarterly Review, Kenyan Review Online, New England Review, Crazy Horse, Quarterly West, and The Normal School. She was a fall 2018 Logan Nonfiction Fellow at the Cary Institute for Global Good, and she earned her MFA in Creative Nonfiction at the University of Arizona. As a creative entrepreneur, she teaches intimate electric writing classes that help people tell their stories about sexuality, illness, and trauma, and she is also a professor in Ashland University's Low Residency MFA. I spoke with Katie in March of 2019 at AWP in Portland, and this was clearly before her book was released in November 2020. So we're talking about the process of getting that book done, the deadline upcoming for her with the manuscript, and the work and research that she was in the process of doing for getting that manuscript completed. And the book, of course, is now available anywhere books are sold. So check out Katie's book, Lightning Flowers. It's been getting a lot of critical acclaim as a debut memoir, and you'll hear more about what the topic of that book is in our conversation. Before we get to the interview, here is Katie reading her essay, The Unmaking, published in the winter 2018 issue of the New England Review. On the first day of the year, the ground lay heavy and hard beneath white flecks of gravel. Fog curled out of the canyons. Up in the Tucson mountains, the saguaros wore white faces. The tomato plant, left uncovered, blackened on its vine. I was with him, inside. My hair cast a gold curtain about our faces, white blanket tucked across my back, our bodies warm. The man looked so much younger in that low light, smiling beneath me. All edges disappeared. What happened all that winter was we fucked and then we drank cold dark beers out of glass jars. 
or cradled a bomber between us like a sippy cup. It was good beer. He was a good man, passing me his hand when I reached for it. The train came by. Those long nights. We fucked, and I fell in love. There was an agreement in place, from the beginning. I could not see myself dating him, I told him. He squinted at me, hurt. Are you saying you want something casual? Long before he kissed me, my lover was a burglar. I pictured him in the low belly of the Mojave, casing a car in a parking lot where the weeds made a mess of the asphalt. I pictured a man and a woman getting out, flipping the trunk. They carried flats of fruit cocktail and milk cartons into a homeless shelter. The kid, right behind them, scrawny and silent, slipped loaves of white bread and jars of peanut butter under his armpits and took off through the heat to eat. As a man, he worried about my unlocked doors, the security screen so often agape, my open blinds. He would arrive at the front window of my little adobe house instead of at the door and stand before the glass and knock. At the sound, at his dark silhouette, I jumped, then laughed. I thought I'd be like all the creeps who watch but don't knock, he said when I went to let him in. Then he loosed the blinds down, tugging at the cord. An advertisement, he said, adjusting his bandana. He used to break into houses. When he told me to turn down the lights, I was gauzy and smiling in my dismissal. I'd lived in towns where we didn't even have locks on the doors. I'm from a town where someone would break into your car for the buck 40 change in your cup holder, he said, sliding his hands onto my waist. So burglar, I said, what did you steal? Up on my tiptoes to kiss him. I was like 12, he said, uncomfortable, but he kissed back. I get that. I cupped his face. Still. He sighed. Jewelry, guns, and money, mostly, he said. Good news. I kissed him. I don't have any of those. It had been easy to make up my mind the first time I met him, that Saturday afternoon in October, with wide slices of pizza and cold beers in front of us. The monsoons had stretched on, a long run of heat and hurricane water sliding north from the Sea of Cortez in dark tangles of cloud. The man's blonde ponytail, a gnarl of curls, looked wet with grease or sweat. He wore a wife beater. His biceps seemed alarmingly large. I'm smarter than I look, his okay Cupid profile had said. Here, taste this, he said when I first walked up, and pushed a small beer snifter toward me with a smile. What do you think it is? Imperial Stout, I guessed. Bourbon Barrel. The Trace from Dragoon Brewing. It was a local brew, released recently. His voice was strangely high for a man his size. Yeah, he said, smiling. Nice. You said you liked stouts. I had to see your stuff. He paused. And you probably like barley wines and the occasional saison? You personality typing me by beer, I said. Yep. What is it we want from a date? I expect flattery. I like to see a man wowed. In general, the fact that I am a writer, that I was at the time attending graduate school for my writing, made me a sort of rare creature to men. This man was not wowed, or not visibly. When I told him about my recent research trip to several African countries, rather than being impressed, he told me he thought everyone who accepted food aid should get fixed. Then there was conflict. 
It dissipated somewhat once he explained that he used the term not just to refer to brown people in foreign nations experiencing hunger, as though they were animals I had pushed back, but to himself. He got fixed when he was 22. I said to myself, this has to stop here, he said. That was the first I heard of his mom's meth problem, his disappeared father. Can I be forgiven for thinking this man and I could not exist in the same world? I went on a lot of dates with men who wore button downs and trimmed beards, whose parents were doctors and professors. I like to talk about my feelings, went to yoga, aired on the side of the politically correct. I felt all of a sudden terribly prim. He was not what I had planned for myself. I realized with a hot, sickening rush that he would not fit into my world. I sensed in his communication style a volatility that made me nervous. But strangely breathless, slick between the legs, I realized I was panicked about these things only because of the charge I felt growing between us, like a summer storm swelling and dampening, waiting to burst. Sex, the oldest language, was one we would share. Neither love nor lust are emotions, says neuroscientist Helen Fisher, contrary to what we've been trained to think. When Fisher, the chief scientific advisor to the dating site Match.com, and her colleagues put people who were freshly and madly in love into an fMRI, they discovered activity in the caudate nucleus, a primitive part of the brain known to have evolved around 65 million years ago. Scientists have long known that this brain region directs bodily movement, Fisher writes. Only recently have they come to realize that this enormous engine is part of the brain's reward systems, helping us detect and perceive a reward, discriminate between rewards, prefer a particular reward, anticipate a reward, and expect a reward. These brain systems, oriented around planning and pursuit of a specific want or need, are our basic human drives known as motivation systems. Some must be satisfied in order to be doused, like thirst or the need for warmth. Others can be channeled elsewhere, temporarily ignored. Hunger, our sex drives, and the maternal instinct. These motivation systems are less our reaction to the world and more our orientation to it. The more passionate the research subjects were, Fisher discovered, the more active their caudate was. Passion, she learned, was very old. Passion was the animal inside that helped us survive. Passion was a foundation of being human. Thank you, Katie, and welcome to more to the story. Thanks for having me, Jana. So I'd love to start with hearing a little bit about your writing background, and in particular, I always ask, what draws you to creative nonfiction in particular? Thanks, that's a great question. I actually began as a fiction and... Uh, poetry writer when I was uh, both a child and then through my undergrad experience and so that was my initial training and when I was in my early 20s I passed out in a parking lot and uh, learned that I had a genetic heart condition which is something that I write a lot about and the process of going through several years of illness changed my fiction and I remember being in a continuing education class through University of Colorado in Boulder uh, with um, with a great local fiction writer, and I was turning in stories that were s- just loosely, loosely veiled versions of my own life. 
And I had a little bit of a moment one day and thought, you know, maybe I just need to own this. Maybe I just need to tell this story as my story and see what that is about. And so illness really was the first driver into nonfiction for me. And then once I felt how different it was to try to tell those stories, not for the truths they might contain that came out of other types of characters, but actually as close to my own experience as possible, I really grew, um, grew to love that process. You said, maybe I need to own this. So before that turning point, what do you think it was where you felt like you couldn't own it or there was a reason to veil the truth of your experience as fiction? That's something I'm always asked as a nonfiction writer and I'm always curious to hear about you know, everybody has an opinion on like is there really a difference between fiction and nonfiction and where's the line and as soon as you write nonfiction is it really not true anymore and blah 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 so that's where that question comes from <laughs> yeah I think it's such an important question um, I think for me so I had written a series of female characters who were all grappling with the things that I was grappling with and that was an incredibly rewarding experience as a person in the late teens and early 20s. And I could sort of like change the details in these people's lives and see really at what point they might act differently from me. And so they were revealing these truths to myself in a different way. I have to say that I just wasn't reading that much nonfiction to even know what was possible. Most of the creative nonfiction that I read in my teens and tw early 20s was nature writing. And mm. so I was certainly, in my journaling style, um, really interested in the possibilities of the personal story within the context of the environment. But for, for some reason, it hadn't really opened up as an opportunity for me. And I, I do think as well that um, so much of good creative nonfiction, memoir, personal, t personal storytelling has to do with narrative distance and who do we have to be in order to look back at our former selves and really excavate the gems that are available to us. Yes, yes, I'm nodding so and I'm <laughs> nodding vehemently that listeners can't see. Yes, so I, when I teach um, teach classes like sex writing or illness writing or trauma writing, a lot of times we do these timelines with stickies and we literally look at the distance between two events and this question of who is the voice that is the right one to render a given event? Is it most urgent to be sort of in present tense in that moment, maybe to leave it unresolved so that we're just dipping into something that then we really want to chew on versus doing that deep reflection? And so I don't want to say that young people can't write creative nonfiction or memoir because I don't think that's entirely true, but I do think the craft question of narrative distance is really important. And for me, the questions that illness brought up I think are so heavily filtered through ideas about what kind of stories readers want to hear or what we're allowed to tell or the ways in which we tell them that making it fiction was a way to romanticize and make less painful something that I think is most powerful in its raw version and speaks truth to power in its most raw version yes I couldn't agree more, and I'm working on my own memoir, which has illness, as you know, and one of the things that I was 
really afraid of was because I did a lot of journaling in the moment, like throughout the course of experiencing the illness and the diagnosis and the aftermath and all of that. I was journaling every day thinking this is not creative work. Right. This is me processing what's happening to right. me emotionally, physically, spiritually, physically, 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 you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I like was able to kind of like circle back to, okay, I'm ready to process this in a more creative, artful way as a memoir manuscript. And I would pull out some of those journalings. I was actually really surprised. And I think it's that narrative distance that you're talking about that whoa, actually some of that is useful material. Not all of it, you know, clearly. But the way that I was describing the moment and being in it, I I wouldn't be able to write that now. That stuff is pure gold. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and there's nothing more frustrating than illness experiences where because the experience is so intense that... (laughs) Those nuggets are not there to work with. Right. (laughs) So on the one hand, maybe you have all this material that got journaled, and it's really an artistic process of saying, like, what of this is the art and what of it is just the material. Right. You know, to write is sort of a form of alchemy where you have to put it over the flame and combine it with other things and really see what comes out the other side. Or since I write about mining, uh, an act of smelting. (laughs) Um and then on the other hand, right, sometimes we're missing that initial material. And so we have to find other ways of tracking ourselves down in the world. Yeah. Another crazy artistic. Absolutely. Process. Well, I want to ask about the piece you read, which isn't directly about illness, but I think we'll, we'll turn back to that sure. because I'll, I'll ask you about your book toward the end. Um, so for the piece that you read, talk about the impetus for that piece and then I'll have a follow-up question. <laughs> yeah, that's an excerpt of a piece called The Unmaking. It's from uh, New England Review's Winter Issue 2018. And I wrote that piece very much in the heat of heartbreak. Um, the man in the essay went on to just emotionally eviscerate me. <laughs> Not necessarily um, because he intended to, but sure. because of the way he was built and the way I was and it really is this love story um, uh, that is about mismatch, about the ways our brains know what's good for us or not good for us and can try to set those boundaries and the way our bodies actually contain a reptilian brain stem and a mammalian portion of the brain, both of which have different messages about what's good for us and what we're supposed to be doing as an animal. And so the essay is uh, full of direct chunks from my journal. I wrote really well when I was seeing that man. And of course, I started seeing him under the guise of it being this friends with benefit relationship. And then I just totally fell in love with him and fell in love with his storytelling. So I have all of these pages of journals that are moments with him, which are frankly the most delicious parts of being alive. It was one of those situations of like, if if this is wrong, why would I want to be right? (laughs) And also then the relationship met its inevitable sort of explosive ending. Mm. I won't spoil the essay. You can read it and find out what happens. But um, yeah. And so you wrote a lot of it, you said, in the midst of the heartbreak. And then my follow-up question is I want to hear about okay, what drove you to like Helen Fisher's research Mm, and how did that element and component come into 
the midst of like a messy emotional illness if we want to call it that sure. it's a different type of illness sure because I can't imagine that you were having your heart broken and you're like oh I need to go research about this <laughs> Unless, I don't know, maybe that's the way it did happen for you. Uh, I was a little bit. Okay. Because I am a compulsive researcher. Okay. You know, when I was sexually assaulted as a young person, one of the first things I did was read police manuals on rape and try to understand what is going on in a body that could, for instance, cause a person to lubricate during an assault. I just, I think my brain was built for nonfiction whether or not I saw it early on because I am always interested in knowing how experiences that feel contradictory or complicated to me actually make sense? Like, what is their logic? And so even as I was with him, so I told him on the first date, I'm not going to date you. I don't see myself dating you. And he was deeply hurt by that, and it colored our whole relationship. And the fact that I then fell for him so hard and had some friends who clearly viewed him as like, oh, this guy is not good for you. And other friends who were like, whatever you know so you like a, a man who comes from a very different context from you and there was something about that I really wanted to understand like how do our bodies pick our partners when our minds think it's not the right idea and why are those the most intoxicating and powerful experiences of our lives sometimes and why does human heartbreak feel actually worse than a lot of my illness experience mm. the days after that heartbreak were so physically painful mm. and everyone I met could see it on me and that was really startling to realize it had been a long time since I'd had that kind of experience so I think I heard Helen Fisher on a podcast sometime in that area and was like <gasps> I recognize myself in this she of course says you can't have casual sex with anyone unless right. you are blacked out things are happening in the brain there are hormones being released so I bought her book, Why We Love, right, right as that breakup unfolded. And I truly was pulling out passages and trying to understand myself as an animal. And it made me feel much better about how, how huge it felt, how dramatic it was. Again, I think the way we culturally tell stories about what's happening in the body does not actually always line up with what the body is actually doing. And to recognize that something like heartbreak is not someone quote unquote being dramatic but actually an enormous experience in the brain mm -hmm. hormonally etc and so talk about the craft of putting an essay like that together because you have the emotion of the heartbreak and the personal experience intertwined with that scientific research and it's scientific and it's biology and like, where do you decide, oh, it makes sense to insert this little bit of that science and that research and a quote from Helen Fisher, like, right here? Like, how do you make that craft decision? That's a great question. And I do have to say that an essay like this one, you can really see that craft choice getting made as a choice. There was one literary journal who got a version of it from me, and they're a journal that I really respect and are on my bucket list. And they wanted it without the science and the question for me was does this story become more powerful with the science or should it operate similar to fiction and just be this love story as it is and I ended up keeping the science and so I'm thinking of a few things one is that I need people to care about the characters uh, deeply before we get to the science also that the science has to be as sexy as the scenes 
And so I wrote and rewrote this essay many times, those scientific sections more uh, often than the other ones, which many of them sort of came from my body much more easily. Um, the, the science itself had to be rendered in language that would strike. And that's just really hard and requires a lot of practice, a lot of work, a lot of looking for the right metaphors to render things in. Um, the editor that I worked with at New England Review, Carolyn Kubler, Kubler, I'm not sure how to say her name, she was really smart. And when she accepted it, she said, I have a few things that I'd love for us to work on. And one of them is we either need more Helen or less Helen. How, how does Helen also become a sort of character? Here? Mm. And how, how might we more directly link the work she's doing and contextualize the work she's doing to this moment that you are sort of heartbroken and frantically searching for something. And so there's a paragraph in the essay that I added later that really says, um, you know, later I would wonder about the distance I came between telling him I'm not going to date him and being so in love with him. And so finding places that those two narratives converge for a moment and talk to each other more directly even if it's not a long moment, I think is a big piece of it. And then, you know, in building Helen as a character, bringing in that she was the scientific advisor to Match.com or OkCupid, okay, whatever it was, yeah, is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Whose job is that? I know. I didn't even know that was a job. <laughs> but I guess it makes sense. That's how they get you with those apps and the technology of it is all, like, science-based. Right. Big data of human love. I kind of hate that. I know. I know. (laughs) So I, I, I love that you talk about making Helen a character. Um, and really what I got from reading it was, okay, here's this character narrator going through the experience of the heartbreak, desperately trying to like recover essentially and part of that recovery was the research and the looking for an answer slash explanation slash why the fuck is this happening to me? It's not just me and my, my, my like innate desire for this person. There's something else going on here. You just brought up something that I think is really important for me to hear reflected back and really essential to what I see as my work, which is this sort of survival through research. That's something we've come back to a couple of times, that uh, the personal, I, I believe sort of at a core level that the personal is enough, that a personal story well told can change lives and and be amazing. And I also think in the kind of world we live in that our ability to use creative nonfiction as a vehicle to synthesize things that otherwise don't come into conversation with each other, to um, really broaden our view of what it means to tell a personal story, it's really important. And I did survive in some ways by writing this essay, and I think that's part of why I didn't want to take those pieces out. Not that our method always has to be visible in the final work of any type, but my book also is a really similar format, and there's an essay I wrote back in 2013, I think it was published in 2015 by the Colorado Review, uh, called Shock to the Heart, or a primary... Primer on the practical applications of electricity. And in that essay, I have just been shocked by my implanted cardiac defibrillator three times in a row. And I'm trying to understand it as a 
technological experience, as a spiritual experience, as a um, narrative experience in how it will shape my life. And I think that the essay ends up bringing together people who get struck by lightning, people who are tasered, people who die by uh, electrical shock, like in an electric chair, and then defibrillators. And I ask this question about who are the other people that are experiencing electricity in the body in this weird way. It's sort of this weird tribe of people. And that too was a form of survival. So, so if we're in a boat alone at sea, we've got something to survive, like what else do we need in the boat? Right. And how do we make art from it? Right. And I think that's what is so exciting to me about nonfiction that I don't see uh, available in fiction in the same way. Right. And I love how your research enhances the personal experience so that the story and the meaning and the essentialness of the story that you're telling is helping other people understand the larger common experience mm. behind the personal. That's right. Which I don't think you always have to have research to do that, but it just makes it so much more enlightening, I think. Yeah. What does it look like to read an essay and come away seeing the world differently? Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I write nonfiction too. Less heavily researched than yours, but I just find it so fascinating because you are researching, especially with your book, which we'll get to, such an unknown part of the world, mm. at least for American audiences. So tell us about your book. Sure. The book is the story of my troubled relationship to my own implanted cardiac defibrillator, which is a device that has never saved my life. It was implanted to save my life, but so far it has only endangered my life. My younger sister has one as well. We have a genetic arrhythmia in our family, and my little sister's has saved her life. So it's a complicated relationship to this uh, technology that they called the Lazarus device when it was first invented. It's, it's a rather extraordinary invention, and it's also a much more complicated invention than we think. So the book places the ICD within the context of the American healthcare system through my story, which involves a lot of not being insured or being insured poorly through the Obamacare marketplace. Um, and then it also considers the device within the context of its global supply chain. So the book is asking, is it possible that what we think of as a life-saving device could cause loss of life elsewhere? And how do we run the calculus on what an individual American life means in the context of mountains that are dismantled in order to make products and the people and ecosystems that are hooked into that? Um, in very dangerous parts of the world. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I mean... Tell, say the places you've been, the, the ones you're allowed to talk about. Come on. You can't, uh, yeah, like, sure. that's, like, essential. <laughs> it's relevant. It's relevant. So, um, I mentioned earlier that I was shocked by my device um, three times in a row. It was 2012. I was on an intramural soccer field, and when the electricity struck, um, you know, it was 2,000 volts total. It's this insane out-of-body experience, or I should say deeply embodied experience, mm. where your palms are curling from the electricity. Oh. I had, like, claws for hands. Um, the 
the searing, burning pain from inside you. It feels like getting kicked by a mule while you're grabbing an electric fence, while you're in a party where the bass is so loud, it's thrumming through you. So it's this horrifying experience. And afterward, I was lying on the ground, smelling my own burned tissues, and I had this bizarre thought. Uh, what if I have conflict minerals in my body? Like, if this just saved my life, which it turned out it hadn't, it had been an error, if this just saved my life, was it worth it? If my device contains metal from parts of the world where people are extorted, where they are forced to work at gunpoint, where women are kept as sex slaves. I can't, I did not plan this. It was this sort of thing that landed inside me and that's what kicked off the whole book project. And so the project has really, I have spent time at many mines in the American West, but the project has really been focused on the African continent. Um, some of the first travel I did was to mines in Madagascar and South Africa. I ended up circling back to the issue of conflict minerals and traveling to Rwanda. And then this fall I did go to the Democratic Republic of Congo, <laughs> which is the one that gives people heart attacks <laughs> when they hear. But I think for me, um, two of the projects in Madagascar actually had what we might consider the best practices in corporate social responsibility in terms of everything from conservation offsets to HIV spike prevention, which can happen when extractive projects come into an area, to trying to use the economic imprint of the project to fund local businesses. I mean, they were thinking about a lot of things and it was still complicated. And so I was really interested in weighing what those impacts are like against some of these quote-unquote worst-case scenarios like conflict minerals. And so to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo was to stand on ground where people had um, been extorted for long, long periods of time and actually to learn the ways in which even though someone may be in a form of slavery, they may or may not talk about it that way, and they also are still exercising some really interesting free will. So I met some miners who would prefer to do that kind of work again, uh, rather than taking other jobs, like, through the company. So, yeah, it, it's been a really um, expectation-blowing set of research. And I feel incredibly grateful to have gotten to travel to those kind of places to eyeball it myself. Mm. Um, and, and with this chunk of metal still in me, yeah. above my breast. Yeah. And so the book is similar type of writing on a much larger scale to the piece that we heard you read, where you're weaving all of this research and like the medical scientific research of the device and... <laughs> the. I mean, the, the, just like the natural world and mining and like actually excavating these minerals and with you, Katie, the person who has this device in your body and the experience of living with it, which again is to me so fascinating and sounds like such a huge undertaking and I really commend you for like going after it and just like yes this is a story I have to tell I have to use my personal experience to illuminate these aspects of the medical world in America thank you yes it has felt like an enormous undertaking yeah this is year seven and I never could have imagined how much it would take when I began the project, um, essentially lying on that field yeah. that night in 2012. The amount of expertise to talk about a complicated genetic problem, and then on the other hand, to go through a bad breakup that was associated with um, 
my illness experience. So there's sort of a relationship that begins and ends within the context of the book. And adding all of that to this international reporting, these are things I did not know how to do. And so it's interesting to have done this as my first book because I really have become the writer I am through the book over these last seven years, yeah. both in my MFA and then afterwards. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. Um, and the manuscript is due or about to be due or <laughs> was late. just due. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, if anyone knows me, this is like 0% surprising. Uh-huh. No one is surprised. I'm consoling myself that I'm not the first writer ever to have a book that's late. No. I have much less anxiety over it than I thought I would, and that's because I have shown up to the work. And yeah. I think I would feel horrible if I had not shown up and then it were late. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the personal sections of the book are extremely traumatic, mm-hmm. and I have lived a jam-packed life. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I have had a lot of medical trauma back-to-back, and so there's a lot of things that hadn't gotten... Um, processed enough to write them and so the writing of them was extraordinarily hard yeah I just spent the last two months on top of a mesa in New Mexico basically screaming alone in my house walking down the hill to have trauma therapy in this art that was on the property and then going back up and just doing as much as I could at any given time and drinking a lot of tea and I developed a drinking chocolate habit I'm like really gonna make this drinking chocolate very now. Decadent. I know it was great, <laughs> but combining that then with the craft challenges of um, how journalistic am I gonna be in rendering these trips to Africa, and how does that sit beside the personal work? And I, I have had a huge shift in voice in the last two months that I think is really important. So. The book feels about 90% processed and about 65% on the page. And so I think it will be done in the next few weeks, but I certainly am working in my hotel room (laughs) during this AWP. And it's forthcoming with... It's forthcoming from Little Brown Spark in March 2020. So a year from now. That's right. Yeah. I can't wait. So they're already talking to me about the cover and the subtitle. I got to (laughs) finish. I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. Um, Thank you so much for making time out of your busy AWP schedule to sit down and talk with me. Thank you so much for having me. And before we sign off, just say where people can find out more about you and your work. Sure. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Girl Makes Fire. You can find me on Facebook at Write with Katie Standifer. That's where I teach classes that help people engage their stories of sexuality, illness, and trauma. And my website is www.katherinestandifer.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks, Jenna. That was Katie Standifer. Find Katie online at katherinestandifer.com and on Instagram at girlmakesfire. Find the links and info from today's episode in the show notes online at moretothestorypodcast.com. And of course, look for Katie's book, Lightning Flowers, anywhere books are sold. If you're looking for a place to find more support with writing your true personal story, let me tell you about the More to the Story community. The More to the Story community is a free and safe space online for nonfiction authors to connect with each other, hone their craft, share their experiences, and make real progress on their projects. 
You'll connect with me and my team of editors, but you'll also connect with other writers just like you. Visit janamarlise.com slash community for more info and to request to join. I hope you'll join me. I would love nothing more than to support your writing journey of telling your story without shame. Next time on More to the Story, I'm joined by Kelly Fig-Smith, another Under the Gumtree contributor, and we talk about journaling, grief, and writing the flash form. To subscribe to this podcast, go to itunes.com slash more to the story. While you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you, and it helps other nonfiction writers just like you find the show. More to the Story is produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California. Special thanks to my husband, Jeremy Marin, who wrote and performed the theme song. You can visit us online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Follow Under the Gumtree on Instagram and Twitter at Under Gumtree. I'm Jana Marin, just Jana on Twitter, Jana Marlise everywhere else. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story, tell me true. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Sitting on the balcony, drinking up our wine. Talking about the way that we used to live our lives The words in the books, man, they're nothing but lines I look into your eyes and you look into mine You say, tell me a story, tell me true I want to know what happened to you the stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll, I'll tell mine to you.